Turn to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 5. Um, I said this last week at the, uh, at the annual meeting, and I quoted a scripture from Matthew chapter 24. It's a, it's a, a very dark and bleak um, scripture for those who do not know Jesus, but for those who know Jesus, it's actually a very encouraging, uh, it's light in a dark place. Jesus is describing to the disciples what's going to happen in the end times, the destruction of Jerusalem and, and, the, and the tearing apart of families and, and just the, the chaos uh, that we call the tribulation that will take place prior to the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, Jesus gives this verse or he gives this uh, encouragement that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news will be delivered to all the earth. It is our duty, it is our job as a church, as ministers of the gospel individually and collectively, that's our job. We make disciples, we, we do fun things like men's breakfast and gals, and, 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 but the ultimate goal of all that we do is to deliver the message of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus, uh, being God, emptied himself to come to this earth as a man to die for our sins so that we might be the light, have the light, exist in the light of Jesus, that our life and the traje trajectory thereof can be completely changed for the rest of our lives. See, we live in a world, and, and we were included in this prior to knowing Jesus, a world that instead of drinking from the, the living waters that is Jesus Christ, we were busy hewing out our own cisterns. We're digging, we're, we're, we're excavating, we're looking for, and I don't know what all entails looking for water in the ground, but we did everything we could to sustain ourselves rather than drink freely from the fountain of life that is Jesus. I want you to know that that world still exists. We exist in one world while the, the rest of the world has their own world, culture, whatever. They are busy digging for cisterns, looking for water to satisfy their soul when we ourselves, we have the living water. Jesus tells us to come and to drink freely, not to, not to hold yourself back, not to, not to limit yourself as to how much you drink from him. The problem we run into is that the church has changed this message from a message of life giving to dream building. I have, I have lots of dreams and my dreams uh, change from time to time. Lots of aspirations. When I talk about dreams, goals and aspirations and things that I want to do in my life. And, and Jesus has been uh, kind of brought low, brought down to this place where his only function is to make sure you're happy and you get what you want. Set a goal, set a dream, and then Jesus will help you get to that place church, as I read the word, I, I find none of that. I think that Jesus is very concerned with you. I think that he loves you very, very much. He sent his son to die on your behalf. He, he thinks that, that you're worth dying for, to, you know, have a little pun in there. But your dreams and your goals in and of yourself that you can bring up, that you can think of, they're not the primary goal of this life. Now, your dreams might be good dreams. Your dreams might be to become a missionary, to go to some third world country, to build an orphanage or a hospital, to give everything you have to the poor. That's a great dream. And there are people around this earth today who, who do that and they're glorifying Jesus. And there are people who are doing it within our own country. 
setting up kitchens and cooking breakfast for kids and adopting the, the children of our culture that are unwanted. But those dreams, those goals, they come second. Your happiness comes second to what the Bible calls holiness. And today's message is all about holiness. First John chapter one, verse five says, this is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John says, this is the message. The mess- John is relaying to us, to the early church for, for generations, centuries now, this message that he's giving to us is not theory, It's not his best guess. It's the message handed down from Christ himself to him and the other apostles slash disciples. This message that he brings to us is not secondhand. It is firsthand. He has not just heard it. He has lived it with Jesus. One of the reasons why we we find the Bible so credible in being, you know, 2,000 years removed from many of the writings of the Bible, many people question, well, how do we know How do we know that this is the truth? How do we know these people wrote this? Because many of these men who wrote these words met their death because they wrote these words. And and forced with a choice to either recant or to stand firm in their faith, they stood firm. We believe that if it was a lie, they would have recanted. No, you know what? We made this all up. Please don't take our lives. They went to their death willingly knowing that they had proclaimed the truth. John, they they tried to kill him, but they couldn't. The man just would not die. He lasted longer than all the rest of the apostles. He bore the scars on his body of trying to be boiled alive. He was exiled to an island named Patmos, where he received the revelation of God. That's the last book of the Bible. And try as they might, they just couldn't shut John up. And John says, we have this message. Now this message, this word, Most often in the Bible, it's translated as promise. Here's the message. It's not just that we have this information. We have this information that's based on a promise. This word message means, it means message, but it means promise as well. What Jesus has given us is more than just a relay of information. He's made promises to us. Promises to save us. Today we are saved, not by our own works, not by what we've done, not because we've said the right prayer, but because Jesus came first while we were still sinners to die on our behalf. Today life can be completely different for you, not because you're gonna choose a new path, but because Jesus has made promises to us, to his church, to us individually and to us collectively. The gospel message, Romans 5 and 8, says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we, we, we so often get the, the, ox, or the cart before the ox. And we, if, we just, if we just do better, 
Even, even if we give our life to Christ, we, we still continue to live in this place of, of having to earn God's favor and love. When the Bible speaks so clearly that there's nothing else we could do to get any more from God. That, that he's given us his only begotten son willingly. We haven't twisted his arm. We haven't forced his hand so that he has to give us his son. He's done so while we were still unworthy of his son. It's the message, it's the promise that matters, church. We're gonna go out and we're gonna encourage people. We're gonna love them. We're gonna, we're gonna be a light in a dark place that Jesus tells us to be. We're gonna be salt of the earth. But understand this, the message that's going to change people is the promise, the message of the gospel of Jesus. This means while these are good things, better marriages, eating right, finances, raising kids, social, social justice, all of these things take a back seat to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I believe that if we, and I believe that the Bible would back this up, we can discuss it if you'd like, that if you will get your relationship right with Christ, these other things begin to take care of themselves. You begin to glorify Jesus in everything that you do. You start making better decisions about your money and what you should eat and how you treat your spouse and how you raise your kids and how you look at the world when you see people who are being treated poorly, who, who are being discriminated against. When Jesus recalibrates you, changes you, transforms you, you look at the world in a brand new way. You look at the homeless in a brand new way. You look at the hurt and the downtrodden in a whole new way. You look at the rich in a whole new way. You may look at them before as privileged and snobbish and, and, and undeserving. And then you realize, man, they're people just like us trying to fill a hole that they can't fill. They're hewing out those broken cisterns. It's not holding any water. There's no satisfaction. And man, they need Christ as much as I did or as much as I do. The message, this promise is for everybody. Now remember the backdrop of this. Jesus is writing to the church because the Gnostics have infiltrated the, 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 the theology, uh, if you will, the false theology of Gnosticism has infiltrated the church and they've begun to teach that only a select few will know this message. Only some will know this. And if they're lucky, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of start moving up this ladder of knowledge. Very similar, very uh, eerily similar to, to things like Scientology where only a select few know and only a select few can impart that knowledge to the next person. So it develops in the people, not a hunger for God's word, not a hunger for a relationship with him, but a hunger to get it within the inner circle, to be in the know and to, to know these mysteries. And the thing about mysteries, generally speaking, is that they can't ever be found out. So it's this place of neutrality. It's, it's this place where there's no commitment. There's this place of this self uh, this, this, this fake freedom. But when Paul writes about the mysteries of Christ, he says, I'm gonna reveal to you the mysteries of Christ. I'm gonna tell you the mystery. Now, that doesn't mean we know everything. There certainly are a lot of things about Jesus we don't know. There are certainly, uh, just think about the Trinity for a moment and how, how God coexists but doesn't and how he's, he's three in one and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how they work together and there's this loving community of, of deity and how that, I mean, that's mystery enough. What's been revealed to us about the Trinity is about as much as we're gonna know before we meet Christ. Heaven, heaven's still a mystery because not so much because the word doesn't reveal to us heaven, but because for the last few hundred years, 
Man's idea of heaven has convoluted what the Bible says about heaven. Hell, hell is still a mysterious place so much that Christians divide over what hell is and whether or not hell even exists. The Bible speaks very clearly of, Jesus reaffirms that there is indeed a hell, a place of torment and separation from God where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where uh, honestly you don't desire to go, but it's a place where people will choose to go by rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. All of these things, while, while they might have an air of mystery to themselves because they are not completely knowable here, they've been revealed to us by God's word. To stand before you and say there's only secret knowledge that only a select few are going to know and will you be that select few? And then manipulating that into giving and, and serving and, and maybe if you just give a little more and serve a little more, then God will reveal to you more. That's the system that the Gnostics were setting up. It would really begin to flourish in about 100 years after the writing of this but it still exists today. You see it all over the internet. You see it all, and they don't call it Gnosticism. It's often called things like prosperity gospel and, and ultra faith and hyper faith. And it's, it's this, uh, it, it, only a select few are gonna know. And then when you don't b- agree with them, well, you're not spirit filled or you're not, you're just, you just don't, God hasn't revealed it to you. It, it's, it's elitism in the worst way because it's not elitism. It's not being elite. And so, Gnosticism might have different names today, but we're still fighting that same fight. We fight the fight the same way John's fighting the fight, by going back to the message, going back to the promise, going back to what Jesus has said, what the word affirms about him, to learn and to study and to seek what he has said, because ultimately that's all that matters. What I say, what you say, our opinions matter little. The facts of the word is what matters. So John says that God is light. Number one, let me go back just a little bit. If you're hearing in whatever you're listening to, reading, whatever pastor you you let have authority in your life, if you're hearing that there is secret knowledge or there is is, uh, only a select few are going to know or or they they do that thing where they kind of cock their head and they kind of have pity on you because you don't understand their false teaching. Understand this, it's false teaching. Let it be a red flag to you and start questioning everything they've said to you. You should have a healthy skepticism. Um, you don't have to call everything a witch and call everything, you know, uh, because they don't agree with what you say. But when they start with this secretness, this mystery, let that be a red flag. Let that be something that, that puts you on guard as to what's being said. I had a dream last night. I stood face to face with who I consider one of the worst, worst worst proponents of false theology in our culture today. I stood face to face with him. I told him, you're a heretic. You're in a pot. I just went off on him. I was in his, he was in a gated community. It was very rich, lots of big houses. He hit my car and just brushed it off. And I just let into him. And I, I can't tell you why I had that dream. Um, but I remember thinking, man, like there's just not enough people who will stop listening to this garbage. I think about the prophet Jeremiah. He stood up against the false theology of the people. Not everybody did, but God called Jeremiah to do that. To stand before the teachers of this false doctrine of his day and say, no, that's not what God's saying. That's not what God has said to you. Man, you need to repent and get, get away from this idol worship and, and you know, putting together worship of Baal and, and God together, going off and, and committing abominations like prostitution and and sacrificing your kids and then coming back to the temple like everything's fine. 
Like nothing's happened. So sometimes we do that. We listen to these weirdos and, 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 and we listen to them and, and they have this authority over our lives and we kind of just take it because either we don't research it ourselves or we, we just trust the wrong people. And so what I'm here to tell you is, is, you know, trust people as far as you can throw them, but go to the word of God. The word of God, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the Bible says that God is light. This light, this is a metaphor. He's not really physical light. He, the Bible shows us that he emanates light. He's the source of light. When God says in Genesis 1 that, that let there be light, he doesn't create the sun that day. He doesn't create the moon or the stars that day. This light that appears first over this world that's without form and void is a light that comes from him. It's the light that he shines. It's the same light in the book of Revelation that casts no shadow. So we don't understand that. When you go outside and you stand in the sunlight, there's a shadow somewhere, right? For a brief moment, maybe at 12, there's not really a shadow, but there will be one under you, but you'll see a shadow of everything. It's not a complete, fully encompassing light, but the light that God is, is fully encompassing. But this is a metaphor. And what John is telling us is not just that he's this great source of light. He's not a lamp. What he is, is completely holy. He is completely separated from sin and death. And this is why we need him so desperately because we are not holy. I spoke to you last week about this. When, when I receive a gift from the Lord, something that I know that only he could do, it, it reminds me of the great joy I have in him, but it reminds me as well as, of my imperfections. How desperately I am in need of his holiness and how unholy I am. And it doesn't lead to condemnation. I'm not condemned to hell. It reminds me that I have been forgiven greatly, that I have been forgiven much. And it fuels the love that I have for Jesus. Then, it then fuels that love that I reciprocate back to him. Oh man, Lord, I cannot believe that you have done this for me. If you need an example of that, go to the, 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 the example that Jesus gives, gives of the priest and the sinner, the parable where the Levite comes in and he's like, oh, I've done this and I'm not like that tax collector back there. And the tax collectors won't even come to the altar. He's beating his chest. God, forgive me, I'm just a sinner. I can't even come to you. And Jesus says, that's the one that's welcomed in. That's the one that's lifted up. The one that came all, all haughty and, oh, I deserve to be here. That one's gonna get broken down. But the one that's in the back, the one that's like, I, I can't even come to the altar. I'm not worthy, I'm dirty, I'm sinful, I'm not holy. You, and recognize God, I recognize these things because you're so holy. Well, that's the one that God lifts up. It's not a place of self-deprecation. It's not a place where you just always talk negative or down about yourself. It's a realization that there's this foundational doctrine of the Bible that we are sinners. The Bible tells us apart from God that we are sinners. We're not just good people trying to get better. We're not good people. They're just a little bit lost. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Romans 3 and 1 says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? Now, a little backstory here. We did a whole series on the book of Romans. It's all online. You can listen to it. Um, For the first few chapters, Paul is making this argument towards a predominantly Jewish church that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, meaning, meaning one doesn't have it better off than the other. It's not as though the Jews have a head start before us that, 
that uh, we start so far behind and then God's gotta do extra stuff for us that before God, when it comes to sin, Jew and Gentile are on the same plane. We're all sinners. So he says, are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the world before Jesus. This is us. Well, you know, I wasn't that bad. Yeah, but you weren't that good either. Maybe you weren't killing people in the literal sense, but you were killing people in the way that Jesus says is just as bad by hating your brother, by hating your sister, by hating anyone. And John's going to talk about that next week. That this is who we are, that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. It's not as though the Jews aren't like this and the Gentiles are. Remember, Jewish mindset is Gentiles are unclean. God doesn't love them. They're on the outside. Don't interrelate with them. Don't mix with them. If you do, you're unclean for the day. You got to go do some ceremonial cleaning. So it's just better off not to mingle with them. Paul's like, no, no. This is, this is who we are. Romans 3 and 22, just a little bit later, says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Imagine, if you will, you are on a racetrack. You're going to run a lap around a racetrack and you start running and you, you want to get to that finish line where that tape is. You want to break through it. And that tape is the glory of God. Paul says we fall short of that. For us, we stumble out of the gate. We fall down on our face and we get nowhere near the glory of God, the finish line. Because we have sinned. We have inherited sin from our forefathers, but we can't blame them because we act upon that. We do something, we sin, and we start early and we get good at it. And so it becomes this whole process of transformation once we meet Jesus to get that out of us, to change us, to deliver us from that nature. John says in verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say to ourselves, we're not sinners, well, we're basically good people. We haven't sinned. Even after knowing Christ that we don't sin, it says that we make him a liar and we prove us to be a liar and the truth and the word both are not in us. And so there has to be this moment where we accept that yes, apart from Christ, we are sinners by nature. But this is the good news. The good news is that's not all that we are. We're not even just reformed sinners. The Bible says that we go from being sinners to saints. It's a radical, God-only transformation that takes place. Today, you stand in Christ. You're a brand new creation. Now, everything is brand new. Every day will bring to you something new that will change you completely. We call this the process of sanctification. 
And one of the metaphors the Bible uses about sanctification is the refinement of metals. And metals are refined by sticking them in really, really hot heat. And what happens is the imperfections or the dross, it burns away and the metal remains. So gold, silver, precious metals, they get put into the fire. We get put into the fire. Oh man, we get put into some of the biggest fires ever, don't we? The fires of cancer and the fires of death and the fires of finances and the fires of this and the fires of that and broken relationships and oh, just the fires of everything. But the fires aren't meant to destroy you. The fires are meant to refine you, to burn away some of the stuff that's still lingering and hanging on. Maybe it's sin that we just can't kick. I mean, we try as we might. We are just doing all that we can, praying and reading and seeking and accountability, but we just can't kick it. But there's some of us, we, we like the sin that we've partake, we're partaken in. It gratifies us somehow. It fills a need momentarily that we think cannot be filled by anything else. And even the threat of depriving ourselves of that is enough to cause us anxiety. The fires of affliction the fires of tribulation, the fires of the circumstances we find ourselves in, they're meant to burn those things away. They're not punishment, they're discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us, not because he hates us or is mad at us, but because we're his children. And a father disciplines his sons to be like him, to be more, to be a man one day. My son and I, and fathers, if, you're, if you have sons, have these conversations and have them with your daughters as well, but we have them with our sons. You know, my son, what does it mean to be a man? What does it, what does it mean to be a man according to Jesus? And, and that's, our, that's our goal. That's our, our template for being a man is Jesus. I don't care how much some guy can bench press or how much bow hunting he can do or how big his truck is. I don't care how much money he makes or what, how much his suit costs. That's not an indication of what a man is. I want to know how he treats people who are smaller than him. I want to know how he treats those who are less fortunate than him. I want to know how he treats women and how he treats children and how he respects authority. I want to know how he views Jesus. To me, that's a measure of a man. You can have all these other things, but if you disrespect Jesus in his church, you're not being a man. This darkness that, that John is speaking of, this is complete depra uh, depravity. This is complete, this is sinfulness. This is the sin that we just spoke about and none of that's in Christ. It's what makes him the perfect sacrifice because though he walked on this planet like us, he didn't commit any sin. That's what the book of Hebrews says. And so he is the complete light. He is the complete holiness and apart from him, we are not. We are being refined day by day to be more like Jesus in a, in a world that is very much unlike Jesus. We might experience times where it's more fashionable to be Christian. We are not in one of those times right now. Um, but that does not change our directive and our aim. Our aim is to, to be Christians, to be Christ-like, to be the salt and the light that Jesus called us to be. And will we fall short of that? Of course. We always will. There'll be times of great victory, but there'll be times of great loss as well. Times where we should have done this, but we didn't. Where we should have gone left, but we went right. But know this, the holiness that we're seeking after is not our own self-holiness, but the holiness that's found through Jesus. 
Philippians 1 and 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus or the day of Jesus Christ. This refinement, this, this process of making you holy is one that will not be done until you meet Jesus face to face. And until then, every day will be a new adventure. Peaks, valleys, tribulations and triumphs. Psalm 57 and 2 says, I cry out to, the most, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. See, if you commit your life to Jesus today, Jesus is around for the long haul. He will be there with you every single day. Even if today you said, Jesus, I follow you, and tomorrow you're like, I rebel and I'm leaving. You're not leaving him. He's not leaving you. He's not letting you go. He's begun a good work in you. Any more than any of your children, should they do the same thing and throw a fit, I'm running away, would you let them go out the door and get more than five feet from the house? You would follow them. You would make sure they wouldn't get hurt. You'd make sure that that you would teach them a lesson through their rebellion, but they would still be your child and you would still rescue them. Psalm 138 and 8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Again and again and again, this promise, this message that we have is that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us, that he'll see us through to the very end, even when it's dark and even when we don't know how he's going to do it. That's not the, that's not the question. The promise is that he will do it. And 1 Thessalonians 5 and 24 says, He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. And John says the same thing, that Jesus is faithful. This is a good word. This is a good description of Jesus. This is one that when you are in those dark times, when things are really hard, you need to remember that Jesus is faithful. Let me read to you from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55 and 10 says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth or out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let me give you a little breakdown of what God has just said through the prophet Isaiah. I say stuff, what I say happens. We've watched it snow, right? Probably a little more than we're comfortable with. Same thing happens every time. Snow falls from the sky, lands on the ground, it melts, it, gets, it saturates the ground, it fills wells and streams and the lake, and it just keeps moving in that process. That snow has not gone anywhere that it wasn't supposed to go. The snow, the rain, what have you. God says, my word is like that. So when I say, let there be light, there's light. When I say, my son is coming, he's coming. When I say, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. When I say, I'm going to see your salvation through to completion, I'm going to do that. Some people twist this to make it sound as though the words you say will not return empty and void. That's not what the scripture's saying. Your words are limited. Your words are finite. But God's word is infinite unbridled, uncontainable. And if he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Because the power of the word is found in the power of the God who speaks it. And so today, what we're busy doing is finding what God has said so that we might say that too. 
Our words have not been given those powers. God alone has that power. If you do not believe that, go home and try to create something out of nothing and let me know what happens. No matter the sin, now this is not just before you knew Jesus. This is, this is, this is even includes knowing Jesus and, and, and rebelling or trespassing against your Savior with sin. John says, let me go back. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our problem is, is, is this. We forget we're sinners and then we don't confess. If you've sinned against God and you know what you've done, it's not my job to point it out unless you're doing it right in front of me. But you know what it is. Confess it. Confess it to God in prayer. Do it privately. Confess it to someone you, you trust and can confide in. You know, brother, sister, whatever, this is what I've done and I feel horrible. I know I shouldn't have done it. And I know Jesus loves me. I just, I just need to confess that I've done this. Confess it to the church if you feel the need to. Some people like to do that. That's up to you. But confess what you've done. That doesn't just mean say what you did. Well, I did this again. <laughs> what are you going to do with me, Lord? Confession means imparting that knowledge while admitting your guilt. God, I did that again. People who confess their guilt with an arrogance aren't really confessing. <laughs> They're just trying to avoid pain. Is confession going to hurt? Yeah. I, I don't know how you get through confession without it hurting somehow. It's going to just take a little bit out of you, maybe a lot out of you to confess what you have to confess. But when you go to the Lord, know this, he is faithful to forgive you. I can't forgive you. The people sitting next to you can't forgive you, nor do we want to. Meaning, meaning we don't want to take that position. But the Bible says, John tells us, the Holy Spirit directs us to know that Jesus is faithful to forgive. There is no sin that you have committed that cannot be forgiven by Christ. There is, no, there is no trespass that God cannot bring you back from. There's no rebellion that God can't cure, cure you of. But you have to recognize it as those things or you'll never confess it. Well, it's not that bad. That's one of the more Christians die by that phrase than probably any other. That's not so bad. Well, I, I only did it a little. Nobody got hurt. No, somebody's always hurt by sin. First Jesus, then you than somebody else. Well, nobody knows about it. Well, yeah, you're getting hurt because you're, you're devastating your life. <laughs> the Lord can be relied upon, taken at his word, and he can be trusted. And this is why we don't like it because trusting someone, anyone, is a place of vulnerability. It's a place where you're completely exposed And we trust people to a degree. And that's okay. We should hold people, you know, should be always, you know, trust as much as we can, have peace with whomever we can. But when people wrong us or betray our trust, that's got to be built back up again, right? It's like a bridge that's been blown up. You got to start rebuilding it piece by piece. Broken in a moment, it'll take a lifetime to repair maybe. But here's what the Bible keeps trying to tell us. Here's what God keeps trying to tell us. He is trustworthy. Meaning he will never 
have placed trust in him that will be betrayed by him. It's one of those things I have to rely upon when I think about my children. When our first son passed away, it broke a lot of trust. Now you start thinking, well, is this gonna happen again? Why did God let this happen? What, did I do something wrong? Did I not do something I was supposed to do? Did I allow something I shouldn't have allowed? And you go through all these questions and you come up with nothing, not because you're glossing over things, you're just, you're just looking for things, you're, you're combing your whole life, looking for something to blame this on, you find nothing. Not that you're perfect, but you're like, nothing that would warrant the death of a child. And you're just like, and trust has to be built back up again. And at some point you let go and say, okay, Lord, I'm leaning not on my own understanding, I'm leaning on you. I'm leaning on you so heavily that should you move, I'm gonna fall. That, that, that everything that I have is now yours. I'm gonna trust that this life that you gave, you took for a purpose. That your purpose for this boy's life was three days and that was his life and he lived. And we, we benefited from and enjoyed those three days. I bring that up to you. Today's the 11th year anniversary of his death. He was born on a Wednesday. He died on a Sunday. I'd, I had plans to preach that Sunday. Uh, I was an associate pastor at the time, so I only got to preach on Sundays every now and again, maybe twice a year. So it was a big Sunday. And the night before, I was, uh, we were seeing some improvements in our son. And uh, you know, Sarah and I were just like, yeah, we were about 45 minutes away from our church. Our hospital wasn't, and um, we were like, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna go. And I'm gonna proclaim the word. I'm just gonna fight. I'm not gonna sit back and, and, and let this control our lives. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna beat this. We're gonna, we're gonna be victorious. And, and he ended up dying in the middle of the night. And I didn't make it to that sermon. And it, and it I, to this day, I don't know what I was supposed to preach that day. I lost that sermon. It's like the only one I don't have on record. But I share that with you because today I trust that the Lord did something that even though I don't understand it and truthfully had he give us another chance I'd probably choose to do something differently meaning I would choose not to have my son pass away um, but I trust him that what he did was for my good the good of my wife and even the good of my children they have some knowledge of him but you know they call him his big brother their big brother and, and that's true and they pray for him in heaven. And I, and I start to correct him. We well, don't have to pray for him, but I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna let him. Just pray for him. And they refer to him as he is, as a person who's now with Jesus. He's hanging out with my grandma and my aunt and Johnny Cash, and they're having a good old time. They're singing, you know, will the circle be unbroken or something? I don't know. But see, I, I share that with a smile on my face now. Now, 10 years ago, I didn't share it with a smile on my face. And truth be told, there's still a lot of tears there shed over this. But, but the point is, when you're devastated by death or by health or by finances, it's gonna, it's gonna wear at your trust. You're gonna find out how much you actually trust the Lord. And you're gonna be challenged to trust him more. And it might take you a day, it might take you 10 years, it might take you the rest of your life. But you have a God who is telling you, I am trustworthy, follow me. I marvel at the disciples. They, they, Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They dropped their nets and took off. Never looked back. Just ready to go. And they faced the same, the same things. They, they were persecuted, beaten, and flogged for this message. 
I mean, don't you just hate it when you go to work and you do your job and then everybody complains about it? You're like, I'm just doing my job. Why is everybody all up in arms because I'm doing my job? And the disciples, they're, they're preaching the gospel and they're getting flogged. I can only imagine, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do and I'm being beaten for it. But yet they persisted, didn't they? They trusted that the beatings and the floggings and the scarrings and, the, and, and even the martyrdom was going to lead to something greater. And it did. Here we are thousands of years later, reading the same words, hearing the same promises. The trust that we need is trust that is fueled by faith. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a God? Is he just a sacrifice? Or is he your sacrifice? Is he your God? Has he died for your sins? See, if you don't realize you're a sinner, that doesn't sound that appealing, does it? He died for my sins. My sins aren't that bad, so what, what, what's, okay. Jesus will sing a song on Sunday and, you know, come to the potlucks. But when you understand that what you've done is devastating, I mean, it, it condemns you to hell, separation from God and eternal tormentation, eternal tormenting for the rest of your life, for the rest of eternity, you realize, man, God has saved me from much. As a result, I love him very much. I know as guys, it's probably weird to say I love Jesus, but don't let it be. You know, deepen your voice when you say it. And that's more creepy. Just get used to it. Realize what he's, honestly, don't even get used to it. Just keep reading what Jesus has done and think about what you've done. Honestly, the love will develop and it will become second nature to you. So now what do you do? There must, God's word demands a response. It's not enough to just hear some information from me and then go home and then just live the rest of your life. There must be a response. God is holy. Peter tells us, I think it's in 1 Peter, be holy as he is holy. He quotes the Old Testament. What is your response? I pray your response would be the acceptance of God's grace and repentance for what you've done. The, the confession of your sins. Man, the Lord loves to hear from you. The Lord loves to commune with you, to talk to you, to hear you talk to him. There may not be anybody else in the world who says that. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, that's it, just some of our situations. But not so with Christ. He wants to hear you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you as well. He wants to tell you things. Like you're loved. Like you're forgiven. You're not the same man or woman you were. Things will be better. Your dreams are good, but his holiness is more important. And your dreams might get accomplished, but if they don't, Man, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? So let's pray together. Let your response be one of accepting grace and repenting. I cannot think of another way where Jesus' name is more exalted than when his saints repent of their sins and properly see that him as their God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Your word is very clear of two very important truths. One, that we are sinners but that you love sinners. That though we are sinners by nature and by action, that you have come by your nature and by your action to conquer our sin so that we might be forgiven. 
But not that we might be forgiven and sent to a place of neutrality, Lord, but forgiven so that we might be welcomed into your fold, that we might become a part of the family of God, that we would become your sons and your daughters, saints forgiven and adopted and redeemed. Lord, you alone have this power. You alone are this God. We confess this to you today, Lord. Father, we confess our other sins as well. Father, I pray that you hear the hearts of your saints today as they confess their sins to you. Lord, I am thankful that there's no sin that can separate us from you. That we've heard the call of the Holy Spirit. We've given our life to you. And even if we foolishly and stupidly do something sinful, Lord, that you are faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I thank you that you alone have this agenda. And Lord, we've heard your message today and I pray that we would accept the message and the promise that you have for us. Jesus, rule and reign in our lives. Where it says you are gentle, your, your yoke is light, you are, you are a good shepherd. Help us to trust you by faith. In your name we pray, amen.